The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined once again by Tuomas Malinen from Helsinki, who is the CEO and Chief Economist of GNSEconomics.com, which produces excellent reports and economic forecasts. He's also an adjunct professor of economics at the University of Helsinki. We'll be discussing the global economy and the historic crash that is now underway. Before I get to our guest, let me just remind listeners to subscribe to our email list and alternative channels such as Telegram, BitChute, MeWe, and Minds. Dr. Robert Epstein was on this channel half a year ago, warning that 2020 was the year of the big tech takeover and his prophecy has come true in spades. Massive censorship is going on. So stay in touch with us through our website, email list, alternative channels, and please leave us a podcast review and tip if possible. All right, Tuomas, how are you doing these days? And is GNS Economics keeping you busy? Hi, uh, yeah, hi thank you. Um, yeah, well, I'm fine. Actually, we are. I'm rather busy now. I, I try to I try to have a, a small break maybe next week, but, but GNS Economics, we are growing rather rapidly now and they are all you know different projects are on the way so we are we are in a good spot now and it's 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 truly interesting as as we follow the kind of a development of the of the global crisis that really got started in in march this year it's good to hear that you're doing well and that gns economics is is growing i thought we might start by carrying over from our first conversation from a year ago so which mm -hmm. took place last november of 2019 and i just did an interview as well with economist alasdair mcleod who pretty much made you know similar same predictions uh, as yourself he wrote an article as well in november of 2019 outlining many aspects of the current crisis so both of you made these kind of calls before the so-called uh pandemic. So one year ago, you said that this financial crash and calamity was going to be absolutely historic and that it was inevitable, baked in the cake, ready to go. And it seems we are now well underway into this crash. It was reported that U.S. unemployment is 26%. That's Great Depression territory. Uh, banks, some, some banks are teetering on collapse, while the central banks are looking to move us to I suppose, perpetual money printing through digital currencies and perhaps a cashless total control system. The IMF has come out and said we are now officially on par with the 1930s Great Depression. So I could never imagine we'd be living in such a scenario. Can you tell us, you know, how far along are we in this crisis? Uh, how bad things are going? Well, they are quite bad, actually. The, the, the warning or the, the discussion we had, we had November last year, we were just expecting, we're waiting uh, to see when the when the recession comes and and the banking sector problems start in Europe. The, the, I, we think we consider that the that the ground zero of the coming crisis will be in Europe. Well, the recession started in in uh, in Q4. Actually, recession started in Europe when we spoke, basically, uh, and that we considered we first considered that that would be big enough trigger although it would take some time for the crisis to truly get going in the eurozone but now when the when the corona pandemic hit two things kind of happened first uh, the the crash on the, on the financial markets came but then also what what also came was a never before seen uh response by the global authorities so we they get we did, took a massive leap towards this uh 
financial socialism that we have been warning would, would just be uh, would, would be which that when the crash occur, uh, happens it will start the process and now we're in the process going into uh, deeper into financial socialism all these things you mentioned like the IMF calling the new new Bretton Woods and the digital currencies and all this is just one part of it the, the in in essence this is a, a question of of the global institutions and leaders uh, being afraid that they will uh, lose their power. And this is behind this massive response that we have seen, like governments uh, taking trillions of dollars of debt and central banks printing to similar amounts. And they have all been thrown into the economy in a desperate effort to kind of get this global zombie economy going again. And it will not work. It will help for a while, but we are heading into some really deep water here. Yeah, I wanted to save that topic for a little bit later, the global economic dystopia, because that's for, for me, I mean, that's one of the most important things. And that's kind of like the end game. And so, <laughs> but, but before we get there, you know, another one of the topics, you write great articles, so people should go to gnseconomics.com and follow your Twitter. Uh, but recently, food is being hoarded. Food prices are skyrocketing, farms are being shut down, and supply chains being broken. And then you wrote in one of your recent pieces, quote, we may even see widespread hunger and rationing in the Western world for the first time since the 1900s, end quote. Uh, I've been feeling the same way. And, you know, this is absolutely astonishing. It's like we're living uh, in a movie. What do you make uh, of these developments, these consequences, for example, in the food sector uh, as, or as, as well as in other areas uh, that we might be hit well back in may early may we published a, a, a special report which was titled apocalypse now question mark so uh in it we we envisage how, how how would second wave of the coronavirus pandemic combined with the banking crisis hit the world economy it, it was actually based on the um uh, on, on this uh, scenarios so or modeling of uh, it's a center of um, uh, infectious disease policy and research, uh, research in University of Minnesota or CITRAP. And they're, they're modeling on, on how the coronavirus pandemic could develop over the coming um, fall and winter and spring. They effect, effectively what they did, they, they modeled or they followed the process that the Spanish flu took which uh, kind of ravaged the world in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. And from it, uh, we concluded that if, if, the, if a bad second wave hits and there is also a banking crisis, there is a uh, very high possibility that the, um, that the global supply chain will broke down completely, meaning also that the food transports will cease. And there are like several. There are several mechanisms for 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 this to this to happen. First, in the in the banking crisis, um, when is if and when it's global, there are things called things called global freight derivatives, which are essentially insurances for all the bigger shipments uh, of food across the or any freight actually across the globe. And if the banking system crashes you will not get those insurances, which means that the freight will stop. And this was the first 
the first um, kind of a um, process that could lead to these serious food disruptions. And the second one was naturally that the, the coronavirus will will break the chains, which already in in some small areas did happen in during during the spring wave. But then there's also a a, a third development which has not been recognized fully is that there's this is now coming to be I think just the fourth consecutive year of famine uh, not famine no <laughs> not famine the virus um well there's a there has been a problem with fruit fruit production across the globe so we are we are our, our food supplies are dropping at the same time when we have these problems emerging in the horizon on on the on the possibility of, of, of food chains breaking up. And this is, we, we don't consider this to be a high probability event yet, but this is a um, this is a true risk. And if that would come to be, we could really see famines for a first time and, and for a long time in the Western world. And this is this is not something we are we are forecasting, but we are we are warning on the possibility of such an event. Yeah, I definitely hope it doesn't get to that stage. But, you know, every time Tuomas makes a forecast, you know, this might happen. Often it goes in that bad direction. But uh, speaking of, uh, as well, the food prices and inflation, you know, I, I live between Kazakhstan and Mexico, and I'm I'm looking at the data and I'm seeing, I'm, I'm feeling it in my purchases that food prices are going anywhere from 10% to basic goods to, you know, I remember lemons in Kazakhstan spiking to 50% uh, their prices. Okay, I mean, there's they don't grow lemons in, in Kazakhstan, they import them, but things are getting crazy. And uh, what about, you know, looking at debt levels in, in all the nations, especially the US, it seems it's just they've reached debts that will never ever be paid. These are historic levels of, of debts. And I think the US has admitted, well, most countries, they cannot and will not st stop printing Money, my previous podcast guest said we have already entered into the stage of hyperinflation. That's perhaps debatable. Uh, yesterday, the Federal Reserve Regulation Chief said surging deficits are going to require ongoing Fed interventions. You've mm -hmm. said that the perfect setup has been created for accelerating inflation and hyperinflation. Are we going back to the future, to Weimar, Germany? That's that's something we have started to fear because effectively for for a hyperinflation to to happen, you need two conditions to be met. First is that you need to have a uh, central bank monetizing the debt or the deficits of governments and governments using that money to, to effectively in, increase their spending. And the second one is this is this is not so. This usually has to be. Included, but you can get the hyper hyperinflation just by printing. But the second condition is that the production possibilities need to be in decline in some way. This is what this is what happened in in the Weimar Republic, for example. And we are currently seeing quite a wave of corporate bank bankruptcies all over the world, and they are expected to uh, to increase when the debt moratoriums, which are which have now started to end, and they will continue to end all through next spring, basically. So when when the debts come to debts debts come 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 due, then you just you know companies will fail, and now we are in a strange kind of a uh, unbalanced situation where you have the declining economic output with the governments trying to desperately you know increase their um or to keep the economies afloat, and this is the setup where you can get to a point 
where the money printing goes so wildly off the charts that uh, companies and especially uh, workers will start to demand higher and higher wages. And this is effectively what drives hyperinflation. It's just not the money printing, but people, uh, companies and, and, and workers seeing their, uh, their purchasing power of their, of their salaries and, and income decline. And then, and there it goes. And so we are, we are in a situation where, you know, it's not, the, the central banks have printed so much money into the economy. It has just, it has just gone into the financial markets. But at the same time, the velocity of money, basically meaning how often it's used, has declined. And we have started to think that what will happen if, let's say, there is a, uh, what would happen if there would be a, let's say, a spike in the prices of food? Would there be an increase in the in the velocity of money? Would the sum of the money that has gone into financial markets come into the real economy? Would it could it fire up the the inflation expectations? What could happen? We are really in a, in a uncharted territory here, and the, and the real worry is that the central banks will keep printing, government will keep spending no matter what, and, and they will not accept that. We are in a deep economic hole and we have to fix it. We just can't print it over. And that's when hyperinflations happen. When you have an economic crash, which you try to um, try to cover by printing money. And we are very close, very close of that point. So that's, that's why we have started to worry about the possibility of hyper, hyperinflation, even globally. This is just, you know, just because it, it, it seems that the central authorities are so desperate to hold on the power they will sacrifice everything to save the economy from itself if you may by creating a, a, a setup for a monetary destruction and this is something that everyone needs to worry now i, I am not afraid of fi- economic or financial crisis i I've, I've done 10 years of academic research on them and we always recover from those but hyperinflations they are nasty creatures. They really, they destroy the fabric or the fabric of the society by destroying the fate of the public in the institutions. So they are really a menace. I, I truly hope we don't we don't see those. But it's a it's, but it's possible. Well, let's get into that since you, since you mentioned that uh, you know, and this is one of the biggest issues for me. And for many many years, I felt that one way or another that we were on this trajectory. I, you know, I, I've studied history. I've been a teacher, professor of, of history, and I just, I, I could see this coming. And uh, the biggest issue for me, the one that keeps me up at night, uh, as I said, is the threat of global totalitarianism. So, you know, in the past, we've seen totalitarianism uh, take over individual nations, uh, an attempt to take over the European continent, but. I think what we're now on the cusp of is the potential for a global totalitarianism. And you've alluded to this in one of your articles for gnseconomics.com. You write, quote, people and economists, economists should not live in the fear of an economic collapse from which we can recover. They should, however, be mortally afraid of socialism and nationalizations because they will impose a loss of freedom, loss of sovereignty, and at the end, the real risk of totalitarianism. We would effectively step into some form of fascism. This would naturally be to an utter 
unrecognizable global economic dystopia, end quote. You call it global financial socialism. Um, you know, for example, I've heard rumors of the IMF offering a debt jubilee program, but that in exchange for wiping debts, the IMF would take over, I guess, all property, uh, which yeah. would align with totalitarian scenario, you know. Yeah. What would this look like in your mind? And would it be like a truly global dystopia over all nations? Yeah, this is something we have not really thought through yet. We just acknowledge the possibility. Because, because let's be honest, like three years ago, this would be a this would have been a, a pure like conspiracy theory. But now after the after the um heat of the coronavirus pandemic and the response of the global authorities, this has become a real possibility. So what, what one one scenario we can we can dwell on is is the fact that when the banking crisis hits or in a preparation for that, the central banks will set up accounts for every citizen and every corporation within them with the digital currencies. And when the banking crisis comes, banks fall, you just transfer your money and services there. And then all of a sudden, you would have a single bank. It would not be a central bank. It would be a bank of all. And last time the world did see this, something this happening was, was in, uh, was in uh, um, early 20th century when the, um, when the Ghost Bank or the Central Bank of Soviet Union was created. And if you just think about how, how would this work, and it's also when the crash comes, the central banks need to decide whether they print about 200 trillion US dollars to buy at least half of the estimated total of 400 trillion of, of risky assets globally. So this would be a nationalization of the financial markets first, and then also the, the, the banking markets or the, or the banking sector. And then we would have one entity in each country uh, deciding which corporations, which households, with whatever, who, who gets a loan on what interest and so forth. And this would fall into the uh, realm of totalitarianism for sure. So it would be actually it would be a, a kind of a fascism in a sense because it, it would be a full merger of the economy and and the government. And the thing is that in this setup, unelected, uh, uh, untouchable uh, central bankers would determine which happens in with, with which on the what development or what in the what direction does the economy go? Who gets the funds and stuff like that? And this is this is what we should be immortally afraid of, because this would be a highly suppressive regime. And they always, when you get so when you get an economic power concentrated on one entity or entities, then what follows is a surveillance society, of course, to get everything you know acting accordingly. And suddenly we would be in this economic dystopia or a you know global totalitarian dystopia. So it's a uh, this is this is not a some far-fetched, uh, uh, um, you know, um, theory anymore. This, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is this is truly what the path that the IMF and the central banks are setting up with the digital currencies and the idea of the new Bretton Woods or whatever. This is the path they are setting us into, 
and it would mean the end of, of, of the freedom, of freedom as we now know it. And this is something we, we, we have to acknowledge. And you can only stop the central banks by saying, or basically politicians can stop, stop them from saying that enough, audit the central banks and do whatever. And this is, we are really in a, reaching a point of, of dualism here. So either we go back to the free market economy or we go into full economic and financial socialism and fascism, basically. So this is, we are, we are, we are not there yet. But we are getting closer to the point when we have to make a decision, and it worries me. Yeah, I mean, I, as, as you said, this is no, this is not a theory. Uh, I've had past guests, expert guests, you know, renowned people, discuss these these types of things, uh, and you know, r- people, folks as yourself, and especially I like Richard Werner, who explains this in detail. Highly credible, intelligent yeah. people just laying out the facts, and. Yes, I mean, they're now bringing us these digital bank currencies um, and getting rid of cash. You know, I see it everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Here in Mexico, they've proposed getting rid of the two biggest denominations uh, of bills. And the governors are working like mad to install these digital payment systems to get everyone off cash. And so uh, maybe if you could just have uh, any final comments on, on this issue. I mean, what happens if, if they do go this way? Uh, they basically, the central banks of the world, the IMF, the Bank of International Settlements, I don't know, the World Bank, the, the supranational organizations, they take uh, control. And then another thing Werner mentioned was the, uh, their goal is to eliminate pretty much all other retail commercial banks. They won't be necessary anymore, just as you said, just the, our smartphone app with the central bank. Uh, and there's no cash. And yeah. so, and he said that our accounts can be suspended if we are dissidents in any yeah. way. Yeah. They can just, sus- and you can't buy anything. It's like the scenario from the, the Bible's book of Revelations. You know, you can't buy or sell if you're a critic yeah. of the regime. So any final thoughts on, on this system? Yeah, the first one is to understand that if we get rid of cash, it will be, in a, it will be create an extremely hazardous situation for the coming banking crisis because in in a banking crisis all the banking activities are basically eliminated all there are serious hindrances in all all banking services and if we, if we would have get, if we would have abolished cash by then then we would be truly at the mercy of the central banks or whatever in in that because in that case you could only have the digital currencies run through the central banks but this is a highly risky scenario also in a way that all the payment systems has to be incorporated in the central bank. And I don't know how can they do it in the current setup with, with uh, at least they cannot do it. Or let me rephrase. So how can they do it in, the, in a timely manner in the current setup? That, that I don't know because every payment system basically works through the banks now. Central banks are only, only intermediaries there. So I don't I don't know if, if the banking crisis hits, let's say in the spring when we forecast or anticipate it to come, will there be enough time for central banks to work through all this? I I, I hope not. <laughs> and uh, but but if we would end up there, and see the cash abolished, we would yeah the, the, everything that uh, Professor Werner said is is completely true. You know we we could we could, the, the the real risk is that we would have this totalitarian state controlling. All our efforts, they they could they could slap any any kind of you know regulations or punishment for any kind of actions, 
and the, and the banks would need to be abolished, of course, because there would be just one bank. And we would truly enter into the Soviet era of, of, of global ghost banks. And I, I just, I kind of, I, I, I've, I'm so old that I remember vaguely the Soviet Union and I visited it as a boy. And it was a strange construct. I know a lot of people who lived there and worked there. And I don't, I don't see anyone, I don't know anyone who would follow, want to want for it to come back. So this is this is a risk. Like like if we would have talked like two years ago, I, I would have not said this. But now this is a risk. We have to acknowledge the possibility that from the crisis emerges a totalitarian global state. And that would be that would be the dystopia to end all dystopias. So we have to we have to fight against that, whatever means basically. We need to get on the road to freedom, not on the road to totalitarianism. Yes, there's something that each and every one of us has to has to has to do fight against this. Um, the IMF has now come out, uh, I think yesterday or the day before, calling for a new Bretton Woods moment you know uh, is that what we've just been discussing or you know what, what what do you think they are thinking about this Bretton after Bretton Woods you know this, this new global financial system uh, I suppose they're talking about get, getting rid of the dollar world reserve uh, yeah. you know what, what are they what are they are we going to move to a multi uh, reserve to IMF uh, special drawing rights uh, will gold be included what are your thoughts there I don't know. I don't know. I think I think the end game is to go to the digital currencies. I don't, you know, central banks, China, Russia, they they have been hoarding gold, physical gold, uh, in a, in a you know preparation probably for the collapse of the monetary system. In which case, the gold would be used to set it up again. But I'm I'm not sh I'm not sure what I don't think there are, has been any clear guidelines of, from the IMF what they would like to see. But I, I think the idea is to go on the, on the central bank digital currencies and so they could you know, supp suppress the rates to strongly negative and try to fix the economy in that way, which is just ridiculous, the idea, because we already know the negative rates don't work. And they, uh, it's just, I don't know, it, it's, it's really difficult to say, but the, but the signs or omens even are there that they are planning to, when the crisis truly hits, they will offer us a solution out of it by, you know, giving out our monetary freedoms. That's that's how it looks, in all honesty, without any, you know, cons uh, conspirational, you know, thinking. This is this is if you look it if you look this objectively, this is what you see happening now, and it's been going really fast from from March on. So I was highly critical of such theories even a few years ago. I read about this, but you know the you know the, the end game of the of the global elite. But now I have to admit that those who those who we call the conspiracy theorists in the past may have had a point here. That's in all honesty, because this is this this, this does not look like a normal preparation. This looks like a takeover. Actually, to me, this looks like a preparation for a financial takeover in a in a case of a crisis. It's it's. I don't I don't like saying this, but this is how it looks. Yeah, we've entered the twilight zone, you know, the Bermuda Triangle. Um, 
I, I've had the pleasure of interviewing G. Edward Griffin, the fam famed author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. I've even had lunch with him. He laid this scenario out in his book some 25 years ago. Um, you know, and, you know, so forget conspiracy theory. I, I've even uh, interviewed the academic who wrote the book on conspiracy theory, who said that that was a term popularized by the intelligence services to discredit anyone criticizing the, the government. So we're, we're well past. Yeah. Let, <laughs> and let, let, let me please, sorry, let me tell you this. My mother is a retired uh, history teacher. And two years back when we were talking about conspiracy theories, she said that, you know, there have always been conspiracy theories. Now we just now we just need to know in which one of these do we currently live. <laughs> that <was laughs> very, yeah, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so and then looking at perhaps something else you've been talking about is China. Uh, you know, we we've been hearing that Western economies I think are in negative growth. Meanwhile, China has ended supposedly their lockdowns and they're growing at. I think I saw 5% or something. You've said the Chinese economy is not growing and they have just used credit expansion to attempt to grow their economy with the money most likely going to unproductive, unproductive uh, investments. Is, is China doing any better or are they in the same situation? No, they are. They are they, it's just, we, we follow the, uh, uh, the social, or the, what's it called nowadays, the, the Financial of the real economy or something like that. They measure published by the uh, Central Bank of China on the all money going into the economy, you know, bank loans, bonds, you know, uh, mutual fund trust, whatever. And it, since March, I, I call it that it has gone stratospheric because it has broken, it has gone in a whole di different direction from the previous year. It goes not straight up, but with a very, you know, very big, uh, um, steep angle, it's heading upwards. So it just implies, or it doesn't even imply, it says that China is pushing massive amounts of credit into the economy, debt into the already highly indebted economy to appear, so that the economy would appear to be growing. But re in, in real life, the, the, the actual level of financing is growing something like 15%. 15%. So it's, 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 it's more than three times faster than the GDP. So it's just, it, it makes absolutely no sense of talking about China recovery. We would print similar amounts of money. Oh, sure, sure we would see. Uh, or, or we issued such a, a wild amount of credit in the economy, a post credit in the economy, we would surely see some growth, economic growth in, in at, at least this one, you know, comparing purely this uh, measure of GDP, but this is not real growth. And China has, China is so ridiculously indebted already. So when we are used to using the, the own calculations of the, uh, of the People's Bank of China, uh, we have estimated that the, that the credit or the loan levels or debt levels in Chinese economy is something like 500 to 600% of GDP. And I don't know, you know, is, has there any be, has there ever been such a massive debt bubble in history? I don't like like the shadow banking sector is three to four times the size of the economy, according to the estimates of the Central Bank of China. And it just doesn't make any any sense. They are they're just pushing massive amounts of debt into the economy to appear that the economy is growing. So it's 
I don't know. It's 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 not recovery. I don't know what it should be called, but it's not recovery. And since you're based uh, in the in the EU and in, in Europe, you know, to get your thoughts on what's happening in the in Europe in the eurozone with the EU. Uh, I'm personally not a fan of the European <laughs> Union. I'm an EU citizen, so um, I feel it's a anti anti democratic system, a technocratic technocratic. Uh, system um you and others have said that the euro is at risk of dying and the whole construct disintegrating um what are your thoughts there like i i feel that that would be likely but i feel like the powers that be would do everything in their power to not allow that to happen that's for sure yeah but, but if, if you look at the economic situation in, in europe or in the eurozone we are we are in the gutters, basically. So we are heading back down again. If you look at PMIs, all the real-time indicators, and and the recession started already a year ago and in, in Q4. And what what they um and the recapitalization needs of the of the southern European banks are just massive. They are some some estimated to be close to one uh, trillion euros already in Italy, Spain, and Portugal and Greece. And you know this is, this is a massive problems. And what the um, French and German leaders are moderately afraid of is that Italy or Spain or both exit the euros and default. And that would mean that they would have to uh, recapitalize their banks who have lent quite heavily uh, on Italy and Spain and in, in, in a range of hundreds of billions of, of euros. And then they decided uh, when they got really scared <laughs> during the uh, pandemic, or the first wave, that we should have this, what is now called the recovery fund, where we would distribute funds from the north to the south. And this is, the okay, the, the EU leaders got it agreed, but the, it's, the resistance uh, against it is growing in Finland, in Austria, in, in the Netherlands, and even in, in Sweden that I hear. So people are not willing to, you know, just give out money to the southern southern members of the European Union, and there's like if 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 it's 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 a kind of a it's a mixed bag if you may. So if we if we tumble tumble the fund, it doesn't succeed. We will have a banking crisis and the eurozone will break up. But if we if the fund goes through, we still have a banking crisis. The fund will be, have to be increased at least fivefold, which will be taken not politely or good in a good way in Finland and in many of the paying nations. And if that happens, we have uh, enacted forces that could break up the European Union at the end. So there's a there's already this thing. There was I think it was today or yesterday when there was news that Spain, Italy, and Portugal will not apply for the loans from the fund, only the grants. And okay, this, this gives a hint what they are aiming for. They want money from us and they want more of it. And the thing is that the idea, or there is an idea that they, the funds would be paid back through increased um, payments to the EU, membership payments. And, and you can easily think of a scenario where you know the fund becomes permanent and then some member nation who is the, the net payer nation says no we don't pay and when italian spain see this they say well okay why do we stick in the european union we we only have to pay we have received the funds already 
Why would why we need to stay in and pay? And in that place, the European Union breaks up. And this is what I fear. And this is the people, like our politicians seem to be unable to construct even a two-step forecast. They just think, no, 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 we have to, we have to get this fund so that, that the euro will stay intact. But they don't seem to think that, or seem to be able to think, what will be the next step or even the third step? So what we see, or I see, is that the, the banking crisis in, in, in Europe is inevitable. It will come. Only thing we can uh, decide is whether we save the euro or the European Union. I would definitely save the European Union and let the euro, the euro go to waste or the gutters, because it has been a, a disastrous project. And this is something that should, people should really understand in Europe and elsewhere, too. This, the, the whole construct of the European Union is, is unsavable in a sense that it will not be free, open, democratic European Union if you go through these steps. You, you would need some really strict enforcing measures to keep all the countries in, in the, in the case we have the recovery fund, for example. So this is, this is something, this is not the European Union, the European nations were uh, agreed to join uh, back in the days. And this has changed. So at least we should have uh, changes in the treaties and many of those would not go through. But the easiest way, I think, would be to just let the euro go. Just let the euro go. It, it's not worth it. So save the euro. No, save the European Union. Let the euro go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's sensible. Uh, and as you say, if if the politicians cannot, you know, plan more than one step or two steps ahead, at least uh, we can individually. And so your reports, which people can purchase, go into much greater detail on ways. Uh, b besides the forecasts, which have been accurate, uh, they also go into detail on ways people can protect themselves. My feeling, uh, some of my basic ideas are simply getting out of debt and getting into real and hard and productive assets. You know, what are some defense mechanisms for the everyday person? Well, there are just few. You have to first, you have to keep cash. That's for sure, at least <laughs> before the possible hyperinflation hits. But uh, you need to have cash because of the banking crisis. In, in a banking crisis, you know, a credit card and all, all such services will be disconnected or will become unavailable uh, unavailable within a matter of days. This is something that people do not understand. That that is this is what happens in a financial crisis. You so you just need to keep cash. And if you are in a, living in a country which has very low uh, uh, self sufficiency on food, food not food food, now pro, pro, uh, buy some you know stock of food that's just for just for safekeeping you don't you don't it, there's a high probability that you do not need it but if you need it the scarcity of food is the worst because that's we cannot survive without it so have a have a small stock uh, two to two weeks to a month stock of uh, cash and few weeks worth of or two weeks worth of food basically that's you have those i think you are covered but this is this is the best we can do because we, it's really difficult to forecast the severity of the crisis when it hits. It's going to be bad, that we know, but how bad? It could be, you know, life-changing or institution-altering or, or a bit smaller. We just we just don't know it, but we have to prepare for a truly an extreme event. Mm -hmm. uh, are there is there any other 
thought you have for us something that you want to get across that's on your mind or, or any final thoughts for us well i think the, i think now people need to acknowledge that this is no time to be quiet we need to discuss these issues thoroughly so what, what do we really have How, what do we really want that happens in the world when what kind of world we are we will see after the crisis is passed because past it, it will pass naturally so we you discuss and 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 take all different opinions in the in, in the mind and do not think that that cannot happen that cannot happen just try to realistically think what could happen and inform your politicians and you know that's that's how we should go forward with as a as a nation and and a, as a global you know human race of 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 telling our leaders where we want this world to go the power is in in humans at the end or the people that is not not our leaders so we just have to acknowledge that we the people have the power to to determine what's happened what happens in our future all right your main website is gnseconomics.com and people can find you on twitter are there any other sites or projects we should know about well not now those are the main ones so go go there check those Yes, and I definitely, you know, do urge people to not only visit gnseconomics.com, uh, subscribe uh, to them, purchase the forecasts and reports, as well as bookmark Tuomas's excellent Twitter feed. It's a really good uh, resource, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to to, to have seen it grow uh, exponentially. Uh, Tuomas, your forecasts and insights stand out from the crowd, I, I believe. And so, thank you again for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you. It was nice to be here again. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.